Hey, welcome to the Bill Bennett Show, where the podcast that translates Donald Trump, at least for a while, mm-hmm. right? longer. We uh, take a look at the current administration, the incoming administration. We address the existential threats to America. Joining me today, Brian Kennedy, president of the American Strategy Group. He's also the chairman of the Committee on the Present Danger China. Uh, by the way, I am a, a fellow of the American Strategy Group. We'll also hear from our friend Joel Farkas, also director of the American Strategy Group. And uh, he will talk to us about the things he knows about. People moving around the country. What are the directions uh, people are going? Where are they living? Where are they moving to? Where are they moving out of? It's a little scary. Some of these ads saying, you know, you are responsible, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and all you people. You know, that people were doing what is allowed in the Constitution, but uh, it's now being politicized, criminalized. we got to get the poison out of our system. Right. Just a lot of stuff, a lot of bad stuff. You know, the Capitol thing was horrible mm-hmm. and um, stupid impeachment. Uh, to, to what end? To what end? So Schumer says there's going to be a trial in the Senate. Biden should put his foot down once he becomes president and say there'll be no trial in the Senate. Yeah. I got, you know, things he wants to do. I'm not crazy for him to do it. I'd just as well have a trial in the Senate that, you know, uh, absolves uh, the president because he's not guilty of, 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 let's be clear on this, incitement of insurrection. He's responsible for you know, his speech and his encouragement of people and a lot of the damage that was done in his name. And, you know, it was bad. It was a bad ending for this presidency, terrible ending, and he shouldn't have done it. But he's not guilty of insurrection. You can't, you can't, you just can't make that case. But uh, that was the charge. That was the impeachment charge. That's what he was impeached on. Now it goes to the Senate. And we'll see what Joe Biden says and does. So you talked about getting the venom out. Um, once we get past the 20th, how, how does that happen? How does it happen? I mean, because it's so many, I mean, whether it's, if you want to call it extreme left, extreme right, media one way or the other, you know, there is a lot of just, I think, extreme and angry talk and speech out there that if it's going to get out, I just think that it's got to be a bigger coordinated efforts from people who don't seem to want to agree with one another and are more interested in labeling one another, um, to the extreme rather than coming together for any common purpose. We don't have to come together, mm-hmm. but we don't have to be each other's throats. Right. Look, Biden's going to put forward a set of proposals, which a lot of us are not going to like. Mm-hmm. We're going to oppose. What gets the venom out? You know one thing that gets the venom out? Exhaustion. Mm-hmm. People just just too tired. Just, you know, they're exhausted. Stop. So maybe after his inauguration and his, the actions he takes... We'll see, you know, the standard kind of criticism. But maybe people will be less uh, at the throat. Uh, He's supposed to be a calming influence. He Mm -hmm. said he would be, he wants to be. That's the kind of president he wants to be. We'll see. Mm -hmm. But I don't think you can keep up this level of intensity. I just don't think you can do it viscerally, physically, emotionally. I just don't think people can sustain it. But we'll wait and see. I mean, this has been one hell of a year. Mm -hmm. And we uh, we shall see. Uh, we just have to wait and see how this uh, how this uh, goes down. Uh, media here can play a big role. Can they give up their hatred of Donald Trump? Uh, once he goes to the sidelines, conservatives, by the way, who support him like I did, uh, are underestimating what a big move that is. When he ceases to be president, it's a lot ceases. His stature is diminished mm-hmm. by definition. Uh, continue to have a strong and loud voice, no doubt. 
I think of diminishing significance, and I think he needs to leave the stage. Okay. Uh, I don't think he will mm-hmm. right away, but I think gradually he will. I was saying this to a friend the other day, a big Trump supporter. I said, no matter how much you love Donald Trump, do you really want um, candidate Trump 2024, four years older, four years angrier? <laughs> really? Really? <laughs> Does anybody want that? Maybe a few people. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I, you know, I take him in the totality of his actions, and I think his presidency did a lot of very good things, but boy, what a bad ending. Just a bad ending. And uh, that's too bad. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Show. Let's jump in with Brian Kennedy, president of the American Strategy Group, chairman of the Committee on the Present Danger, China. Welcome back. Plenty to talk about. Going to surprise you with my first topic, though. So you saw or heard about the Alabama win? (laughs) I did. I did. I I was hoping you were going to talk football. Because uh, don't you love the name of that Devontae Smith, the Slim Reaper, the nickname? Had you heard, great, had you great, that, great. What a, what, what a dominant team Alabama was. Okay, so here's the question. In terms of national championships over 20, 30 years, I think the two teams are Alabama and USC. But lately, I don't have to tell you, as a resident of Southern California, USC has not been in the game, not in these uh, you know college football playoffs or whatever. But the specific question is this, and I was listening to Paul Feinbaum yesterday, which is a very good show, the SEC channel, and he was saying, one thing they got to stop, and you are the man to ask in California, is the exodus of their great players to the Southeast Conference. We can talk about two right now. You can tell us their names. One is Uga, right? Right. Who's at Clemson, played in that game against Notre Dame played brilliantly, though they lost the game, but they were missing a lot of people. And uh, uh, what's his name? Bryce, Bryce, Bryce Young. Young plays for Alabama. Right. Probably be the starter next year. Now, these guys are in your neighborhood, right? I mean, you saw these guys play high school football. I did. I did. Both of them. And they got it, matched up against each other, too, right? Right. No, they're, no. Look, they, they leave Southern California because they're the best. And they're looking to play for the best to, uh, ch- to just state the obvious. And the best right now are, you know, Clemson, Alabama, and a bunch of teams down south. DJ Uyunglele is uh, going to be the star there at, at Clemson. He looks like a Ben Roethlisberger and, you know, has that kind of body and that yeah. kind of arm. And he's just a, a great young man, played for St. John Bosco here in Southern California. And uh, he's going to be a star. And the other is Bryce Young, who plays at Alabama. And Bryce played at modern day high school. And it, again, is just a fabulous young man and uh, very impressive. Funny. I was, uh, I don't mean to transition this way, but I was on Capitol Hill last week talking about voter fraud. And uh, I was seeing an old friend of mine, Gary Palmer, congressman from Alabama. And in his office was a, an Alabama helmet. And now Gary is a very smart guy, very intellectual. And I said, ah, you're an Alabama fan. And he said, I played for Alabama. Now I've known this guy for 30 years and he played for Bear Bryant. And I said, you know, I've known you, Gary, for 30 years and you've never told me that. He goes, well, you know, you tell people you're a football player and that's all they remember about you. Uh, And of course, you know, the guy started the Alabama Policy Institute and, you know, again, very conservative, very thoughtful guy. But he started regaling me with, you know, Bryce Young and DJ Uyunglele. And he was he was telling me these things as if, you know, I had never heard of them before. Yeah. You you realize what a small world it is. Yeah. 
Well, okay, you know, you answered the question. Well, they go there because that's the best. Well, how do you stop that? I mean, how, how does USC become the best again uh, and, and keep these players home? How do they do that? You know, it's, it, it's a very funny thing. You, you watch these things, and uh, I don't mean to be overly political, but this is a lot like politics. You have athletic directors and offensive line coaches and offensive coordinators and head coaches, and they try to sell you on, on why they ought to come, you know, why – why a young man ought to come to their school. And I think a lot of times they're voting with their feet for the coach they think that will give them the best opportunity. And obviously the school is going to provide them the best education. But I can tell you in in a DJ Uyunglele's case who went to Clemson, he liked Davo Sweeney. And Davo was a Christian and DJ is a Christian. And that kind of moral leadership was very important to him. And he saw it. In, in those coaches. And my guess is one problem SC has is their coaches don't seem to be the kind of coaches that a young man might want to follow. They may want to play for a school like SC that has, you know, a, a big reputation. And in Southern California, it's a big deal. But who the coach is matters. And this is a time in a young man's life when he wants moral leadership. And, you know, the, you know not to exaggerate that point too much, but he wants he wants a leader. And so, they see these coaches at some of these schools, and they vote on them, and they go there. Yeah, and I think the thing you mentioned as uh, reason in, in his case is not an isolated case. I was watching the remarks of most of the Heisman winners, and remarkable how many of them uh, give thanks to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, uh, and express their faith. It's a big deal, and probably more at home in Alabama in South Carolina than Southern California. Is that fair? No. With those sentiments? No, I don't think so. I think, uh, you know, California is a big, big place with a lot of people and a lot of good people. You know, some of the best churches in America are still here in California. I think it's, uh, you know, I think, I think these coaches are really important people in these young men's lives. And like, is Dabo from South Carolina? I don't even know, but I don't know. You look at these coaches, you know, some are really fantastic people and they're all over the country and they decide to commit their lives to teaching young men about football. But a lot of these head coaches, they don't actually do a whole lot of coaching. I mean, they do a lot of leading and they do a lot of coordinating among the other coaches, but it's a real executive kind of job in so many ways. And I don't know, you and I, you and I like football, I think, in part because it's a, it's a, an example of what life is like. It's a war. It's a struggle. It's a, you know, striving for excellence. And it's a reminder that there are other things in this country beside, you know, business and politics, that there's also this pastime of ours that reminds us of something good and also uh, pretty entertaining. Well, let's move to some of those other aspects. Uh, I, I can't, I wish I'd written down his name, but I was watching these Heisman winners and, and one of them, um, I think from Alabama years ago, and he said, you know, I want to, I want to thank God and my Savior. I want to thank my parents. I want to thank uh, Coach Saban, and I want to tip my hat to the other coaches. And um, I want to thank the trainers and the equipment managers. And uh, who am I forgetting? He said, uh, oh, yeah, and the, uh, you know, the... Um, the people who teach at the university. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Just in case you, you know, forgot you were going to a university. Yeah, I thought that was the case. Dabo's from Alabama. Dabo Sweeney. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's talk about politics. Um, 
I told you ahead of time I was going to ask you. You can take it anywhere you want. You can start today or tomorrow or this week or next week. But I, I said, where do you think this country will be politically and in terms of its morale and its direction in six months? Yeah, I've been thinking about that, and it's uh, obviously it's a great question. And I, I almost thought it's not worth thinking six months ahead. Uh, right. Yes, yes, some obviously something's going to happen six months from now. But I think we're living in a period where we need to be thinking in terms of days and weeks and months. And we Americans need to get their minds wrapped around the kind of politics we're entering. Because I think we're going to see that the American left is going to overreach and they may well overreach in dramatic ways that it looks to me like an election was stolen here. There wasn't a, uh, an adequate process to try to prove that there was not a political system that was adequate to meet that challenge. The Democrats didn't believe the election was stolen, obviously. The Republicans were more than happy to get Trump to be gone. And, in, and you know, within that mix are a lot of Americans who actually do think the election was stolen and they're upset about it. Now, one can do you can do one of two things. If you're upset, you can either withdraw from politics or you can engage in politics. Uh, people will do both. But the American left right now looks like it's going to start punishing people for their political views. And that will mean that the people who are engaged on the right may well be the the object of their scorn by the left. Oh, oh I think that's uh, that's clearly begun already. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this ad, but, uh, you know, you are responsible. And there's Ted Cruz and you are responsible. And there's Josh Hawley, these two guys who were basically, you know, right or wrong in terms of, you know, their, their assumptions and their and their views of how it would turn out, but basically in, invoking a constitutional process. Uh, and yet, boy, you know, full weight of, you know, we're going to hold, we're going to hold it against you. We're going to run you to the ground and we're going to hound you out. And, you know, we're going to put you on a no fly zone and call you a terrorist. Right, right. So if you supported President Trump, you're a domestic terrorist. Yeah. Uh, I was I was talking to a state representative in Arizona yesterday, Mark Pincham, and he and his colleagues, including Congressman Biggs and Congressman Gozar, you know, the, the Arizona, the Democrats in the Arizona legislature signed a letter to the Department of Justice calling them to be investigated. And they were using terms like, you know, treason and sedition and things like that completely irresponsible kind of statements, completely designed to inflame the left and inflame their side and demanding that people speak a certain way, that everything will be fine. There will be truth and reconciliation so long as you Republicans, you supporters of Donald Trump, simply admit that Joe Biden won Barron Square. Now, I think all the Trump people will say, yes, he's going to be sworn in and he'll be the president, Joe Biden. Barron Square, not so much. We don't see it. And the process that was laid out to investigate that never happened. Let's be clear. Let's be honest as Americans. I mean, what the heck? After the election, where was the Department of Justice investigating these, you know, thousands of cases of voter fraud? Where did it, ha where did it happen? It didn't. Silence. Nothing happened. And so everybody kind of kept their cool and they thought lawsuits are going to be brought it's going to go before the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, in a in a wise and judicious way, 
is going to examine all the facts and make some decisions. And then we can either agree or accept those kind of decisions. And that will point us forward. What did the court do? Nothing. Wouldn't even hear them. Lower courts wouldn't even hear them. You know, the the Trump campaign didn't actually lose so much as just had their cases set aside for procedural reasons. On the merits, I think I think there were very few cases that were actually even looked at and discussed when it came to the merits of the case. So the system as we know it didn't work. And yet the the American left wants people to essentially take a knee and admit that Joe Biden won fair and square. And I don't think that's going to happen. And I think people are going to get upset and that that being upset is going to manifest in different ways. And I think everybody should be mindful of the fact that we live in a free country. We want to have, you know, peace and tranquility and, you know, good relations among neighbors and friends and states. But to do that, you have to treat people a certain way. You have to treat the political process a certain way. And that's not happening. Will there be another look? You know, I I think that other look is already going on in various states. In Georgia, they're still looking at it. In Michigan, they're still looking at it. But, you know, I I will admit there'll come a time when people will just want to get this behind them. Yeah. But, you know, we're going to have another election in 2022 and 2024. And we want to have a system that everybody has confidence in. We, uh, and today, today they don't. Early on in this, uh, in this discussion, you said the Democrats, liberals, Democrats will overreach. Um, how will they overreach? Have we already talked about that? In what ways will they overreach? And what will the reaction be to that? Will that, be, will that overreaching be successful on their part? Or will it set off a counter-reaction, which will hurt uh, hurt the Democrats? Yeah, I think probably a little little of both. Not not to be not to hedge that way, but the Democrats have impeached the president, and there won't be an actual trial. It looks until after the nineteenth, or maybe the twentieth, or after after the the new senators are sat on the twenty second. But that that itself, if they convict him, and they're likely to convict him. Uh, don't know. But if if they did do that and the Republicans went along with it, I think you'll find a lot of people in America leave the Republican Party. I think you'll find a lot of people who supported President Trump being angry about that. And they won't know. I mean, it'll sort of galvanize them that there was something wrong here. Two steps here. Let me me just interject. Um, I do think it's possible. I know that uh, uh, Schumer, Chuck Schumer, has said you know, he wants to go ahead with the with the trial uh, to, to convict the president. Joe Biden, I think, would be very wise, prudent, smart on his part to call it off for a lot of reasons. One, it'll it sure as hell just very practically interfere with his agenda, you know, things he wants to do, because uh, it'll take time. They'll, they'll have to be there. They'll have to, you know, go through this trial. Um, that's one. Two, uh, whatever the sentiments are now, and I know, you know, some of the sentiments in the Senate, I don't see 67 senators voting for conviction. I see maybe five or six or seven Republicans, but no more than that. You and I differ on that? I hope you're right. I, I don't know the answer. Um, if I'm wrong, I don't think it's more than 10. I just I just don't, don't, wouldn't know who they were. But but go ahead. I mean, yeah, it, well, I, look, I agree I, with I, you. I agree with you. If he were convicted, uh, and it would take a lot of Republicans to do that, I think uh, – Trump supporters will be will be furious. Um, they'll be furious with any Republican votes to convict. But 
Right. Here's why they'll do it. Let me be provocative. Here's why they'll do that. The Democrats will do it. Here's why Joe Biden will do it. And I hope I'm wrong, but here's why the Republicans will do it. Uh, The whole agenda that Joe Biden has is a reaffirmation of the globalist agenda. That is his agenda, to defend globalism and to bury the American first, America first populism of Donald Trump. That means you need to bury Donald Trump. You need to bury everything he stands for, you need to delegitimize all of his supporters. If it creates anger and resentment, that's fine. These people are domestic terrorists in his mind, and he wants to marginalize them and delegitimize them that way. Because the right and proper way of thinking is globalism. And that means, you know, global warming, environmentalism, COVID vaccines, COVID lockdowns, and whatever allows the globalist agenda to prevail. And if that means we have to lock down all of these people who are angry Trump supporters and prevent them from giving each other COVID, if we have to do that for another couple of years, well, that's just the cost of, you know, doing business. That's why Joe Biden, if it destroys the U.S. economy, well, that's just, you know, we've been on top for a long time, they'll say, and now it's time for us to be put in our place. Now, that's not me talking. That's how they talk. Let's say let's say that's true. So they go ahead with it for those reasons. Why will Republicans or a lot of Republicans go along with conviction? Because they agree. I mean, Mitt Romney, Ben Sachs, I I don't want to cast aspersions on uh, on the rest of them. But look. Are you telling me that that the Republican Senate does not share that globalist view that the Democrats fundamentally have? Where where were these people on November the 4th arguing about what transpired in this election? Where were they all year fighting about this? We had a Republican Senate. Where were they where were they holding hearings about COVID and the lockdown, the state of the economy, China China's involvement in all that? Where were they after the election holding hearings about what appeared to be gross voter fraud? Where were they? Mitch McConnell? I don't know how Mitch McConnell will vote, but do you think Mitch McConnell doesn't believe that? Do you think Mitch McConnell really believes something that different than Chuck Schumer? I don't. I think the Republican Party is is nearly at its end. I think it may may well go the way of the Whigs. Really? What does it stand for? Really, what does the Republican Party today stand for? And it's it's very hard to see. It didn't fight these COVID lockdowns. It hasn't stood up to China. It hasn't fought for the Trump, you know, base of, you know, populism and better trade deals and uh, building a border wall. Did the Republican Party fight for a border wall? We don't have a border wall or we didn't finish one. And that was because of the Republican Party. Of course, the Democrats were opposed, but the Republican Party was too. Did we fix illegal immigration? Republican Party is not not fighting to fix our immigration system. I mean, we're, we're at a we're at a point in our politics where it's unclear where people stand exactly. That the Republicans that should have represented and should have stood with President Trump decided not to. They decided that their political future did not include the positions and principles of Donald Trump. It represented something else. And only very late in the game did, did, did Republicans stand up realizing that the Republican base was four square on the side of President Trump. And so it went that way, kicking and screaming. Now, let me tell you, there's a lot of, there, there, there are heroes in the Republican Party for sure. Don't get me wrong. I, I think there's, a, there's, you know, a lot of very fine members, you know, congressmen and senators and state representatives, governors around the country. But the party as a party, as a whole, has not acquitted itself very well 
in these four years of President Trump. It has to find itself right now, or it will be replaced by another party. And I don't know who that party is, but in American politics, that there will be ambitious people who will want to start a new party if the Republican Party doesn't represent the views of a substantial part of the country. Well, it seems to me, I want to move beyond this. You and I have a real disagreement here. I don't think they'll come close to convicting him. Uh, I just don't think he'll have more than a half dozen uh, Republican senators. I I hope to hell I'm right and hope to hell you're wrong. Me too. I hope I'm wrong. I know, I know, I know, I know. But two things here. One, it seems to me the path forward is pretty clear. The presidency of, of Donald Trump, excuse the ending, was very successful on a lot of fronts. Showed the way on taxes, on China, on, you know, moving the economy forward, on regulation, on all sorts of things, on the border. And became a different party, became a party of the American working man. Agree with that? Oh, absolutely. And I think a lot of Republicans, whatever their spines or not, understand that. And they got to figure there's 75 million people out there. You know, and they do respond to that, whatever their principles are. You, you got to carry that forward, right? So I, I, I don't know that you need to, that the party destroys itself or, or gets destroyed. It just comes to its senses, gets past this trial, says, oh, man, you know, the president screwed up at the end. But boy, you know, we're left a legacy here. We're left a legacy of a lot of good things, which we need to pick up on. Carry yeah, no, I mean, look, let's let let's hope that's the case. But to be clear, where the president screwed up at the end was trusting the Republican Party and that they would stand up for him, and they didn't. Where was the Republican Party? Uh, sorry, I'm venting here in a way, but where was the Republican Party helping President Trump get reelected? You know, all these mail-in ballots. I mean, this is this is this yeah, is no, crazy. No, 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 it was crazy. It was crazy. Did Donald Trump have anything to do with his own demise here? Well, I think I think post-election, it was it was clear he didn't have a government that was going to uh, fight for him. He had not constructed a justice department with the right people, uh, DHS that should have been involved in investigating parts of it. Just pause right there. Um, again, we may have a disagreement here, but and and understand, I was disappointed in the justice department and your earlier comments. Very disappointed in the court, Supreme Court. Uh, yeah, I'll concede. John Roberts, the Chief Justice, wants stay out of politics. Da, 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 da. But there's a whole lot of other justices there. Could have picked up the ball. Could have insisted on picking up the ball. I, I don't know. Maybe up till the end. But I don't know that you could get a better Attorney General than Bill Barr for a long, long time. And I know you and I agreed on that. Now we may disagree on the on the ending here. But hard to get a better Supreme Court. So, you know, when you say he didn't have the right people, he had pretty damn good people. Very damn good people. Didn't he? Yeah. And just in those I, two places. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't I don't think so. You don't think so? I, here, here, but l- l- let's do them in order. You, you raise the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court, you have Thomas and Alito. And they're very good men. Justice Thomas and Justice Alito are defenders of the republic. They believe the things that the American founders believed, and they're great men. The other Republicans on there, you know, nominally Republicans on there, uh, thought of as Republicans, including President Trump's own picks. I think they're mostly young men and a woman who thought 
you know, I'm going to be here for a long time. Do I really want to alienate, you know, Chief Justice Roberts, if in fact that that was the reason? And they decided to, to punt on, on their engagement in all that. At a time when the country desperately needed them to engage, they did not engage. They could have engaged and simply, you know, decided the facts differently. And that would have been fine, too, or decided the law differently. But when you look at some of these cases, this is black letter of the law. I don't think you're understanding my point here. Maybe you are. I fault, look, I, the, I fault the court. I don't know what the hell happened with the court. I don't know why they didn't pick this up. I don't know why they didn't pick up the black letter of the law. All I'm saying is, if you were to set out and say, let's see, do I have a pretty good Supreme Court? Yeah. Looks, I mean, before we get into the action here, looks like I got a damn good Supreme Court. You know, at at least, uh, you know, Alito and Thomas. I'd I'd be a little stronger for the other people, too, than you. But but yeah, it looks pretty good. Looks damn good. We need to be, yeah, it looks damn good at one level, but on the other level, it doesn't. It looks like it's filled with very conventional people, Republicans maybe conservatives of a sort, but conventional people who are part of the Washington establishment, some of them, but who who at the end of the day are not going to go to the mat to defend the principles of the regime. And we have the evidence that they didn't do that. And so ultimately that's on them too, isn't it? I agree with that. I agree with that. But, you know, but to get look to, to get to but, be but, a you lawyer. Know, but, 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 you, you know, you line up, you line up the Clemson team against Ohio State. Look pretty damn good. I'm happy with this team. We're looking, we're looking to win this game, and they don't win. So you know, you line up that court looks pretty good, but you know, they let you down. Did they let us down? I absolutely agree they let us down. But I guess right. I, I don't, I don't want to parse this too close. I'm suggesting that we've entered an age where our institutions, if they're failing us, you know, they the institutions ought to be defended, but the people in them, you know. We're not up for the revolutionary or radical time we're in. We're in a dangerous time in our history. We need people. It's not even thinking outside the box. It's thinking constitutionally and and as a matter of principle. And that didn't happen. And it's not like they don't deserve blame for that. And, And, you know, people suggest that, okay, this person, that person, the other are will be good Supreme Court justices. And that didn't work out. And we ought to wonder about that. Well, I, I agree. I agree with that. Bill Barr, you and I probably spent two years praising Bill Barr. Right. But look at the look here. Here was my criticism of Bill Barr. And I want to believe he's a good, honorable, decent man. Uh, and I hope he is. And I hope I've got this wrong. But my criticism of him very early on, very early on, uh, was he got there to the Justice Department. And I think he got there, if memory serves, about two weeks after Roger Stone had been arrested. And I'm not necessarily a fan of Roger Stone in any way. Don't know him. You know, he's not my cup of tea. But when they arrested Roger Stone, you know, a man who who posed absolutely no threat, who has a wife who is deaf, and he's probably in his late 60s, early 70s, and they arrest him at 5 o'clock in the morning. He's a, you know, yeah. consult, a consultant for President Trump who had been doing all sorts of political work for President Trump. When they arrest him early in the morning using a team of people, uh, of FBI agents, and they do it by air, land, and sea, they have a helicopter, they have boats, they have, you know, a big, I mean, it's it's like they were raiding, they, they don't raid, you know, the homes of drug lords with this much force. When they did that, the FBI, they were sending a signal to official Washington 
that if you want to support President Trump, this too can happen to you. It was a political statement meant to marginalize anybody who was going to help President Trump. Now, if I was, if I were Bill Barr, on the very first day I got into office, having seen that, I would have called the director of the FBI in, Christopher Wray, and I'd have asked for his resignation and the resignation of everyone who had been part of that process for the simple reason that that was political intimidation at the highest level. And the mere fact that Barr didn't do that sent a signal to Washington that he was going to back up the system. He was going to back Christopher Wray, and Christopher Wray is in there to this day. And you can blame for that Bill Barr, and you can blame President Trump. President Trump could have fired, you know, Christopher Wray. He could have fired Bill Barr, and he didn't do either one. He thought and he had really, he thought he had really good guy there in Barr, and I, and I think he did. And he thought he had really good people there at the Supreme Court, and I think he did. But they just weren't good enough, I guess, is what you're saying for the times. Um, right, and, right. But how do you, how would you how would you answer my point though? About the Roger Stone thing. Oh, it was horrible. It was ridiculous. Terrible. Shameful. Ridiculous. Uh, and, you know, should Barr have done something? Sure. I'll chalk that up against him. But I'll also give him a lot of points for what he did earlier on and what he did in those hearings when he talked about spying. And when right. He- no, I, th- I think, no, look, I think he's, he's an honest man at that level, right? Okay. okay. But, but we need more than just, you know, pure honesty at this point. When he's asked the question, I don't think he's going to lie, for instance, Bill Barr. Yeah. But I don't think I don't think he made the right political judgment given the times we're in. Okay. Do you think do you think the times in which we're in require something more than ordinary courage and duty, but extraordinary courage and duty? No. I think ordinary courage and duty be okay. enough. Okay, it'd be enough. I mean What's extraordinary? I mean, look, I, I, I don't mean to be too hard on, on many of our, our, you know, people who we think of as, as friends and that we've admired. But I know, I, I, I understand. I understand. President, I mean, president's got to say, geez, you know, I thought I was appointing really good people. I guess that's your point. But, you know, he's partly responsible here, too. But look, looks to me, you know, with. When he, when he was making these appointments, the court and Bill Barr, these were these were damn fine appointments, and I applauded them. I think you did too. Right, but I think the president was thinking, I just need ordinary courage and skill. I don't need extraordinary courage and skill. Yeah. By by ordinary meaning after the election, when you have all these all this evidence accumulating of voter fraud, it, it was not going to work to just have the Trump campaign get out there. And try to find the evidence. Now, Angela, Angela Cotavilla, our, our friend and colleague from the Claremont Institute, Angelo said, you just need to show a preponderance of evidence yeah. and then the ordinary parts of our government kick in to do the investigation themselves, because then people will trust that the thing they're investigating has been objectively obtained. Well, that, that never happened. And so the ordinary parts of the government never worked properly. The FBI didn't investigate and the court didn't examine. And people sort of said, I think in a way it was, okay, enough of Trump, enough of Trumpism. We're going to get back to business as usual. Okay. Okay. Let me tell you what I think. I think, again, he'll not be convicted by the Senate. There is a trial. I'm not sure there will be. 
Uh, again, I think uh, uh, Biden would be very smart not to, to, to tell him to kill it. But if he doesn't, he won't be convicted. There won't be enough Republican votes. Second, I think the Republican Party will figure it out. Uh, enough of the Republican Party will figure it out. That is, that 75 million people voted for this man and that the agenda this man put in place is a positive and strong agenda and that it is worth preserving and carrying on. That's what I think. Well, I certainly hope you're right about that. But you don't um, think I am. Well, uh, my concern about, first of all, just on the merits of the impeachment, the president didn't incite any riot or insurrection. I mean, he didn't do any of that. That that, that part of this is ridiculous. So did, the fact did he do that anything he did, wrong? Did he do anything wrong? Uh, I wouldn't have had the rally in, in uh, Washington. Probably wouldn't have had a rally at all, Yeah. Uh, you know, frankly. So once once you were going to do something in Washington, the ability to, for there to be mischief of the kind there was certainly certainly was there. Yeah. And the president thought, you know, the, the president, by the way, knows his own people. His own people are not, you know, violent in this way. Uh, so that part's nonsense. Well, but the fact that you, you got a hundred thousand people, and a thousand of them probably were, and and they and they, I believe. That thousand would pl- pledge obeisance to him in, in the same way others would. They just, they just, they're just, just nuts or overdid it or were flying on their own, but regard themselves as loyal to him. Yeah, look, I think there was probably many hundreds of thousands of there. I mean, the numbers go to be, you know, 500,000 to a million. I don't know how many there were, but how many people were really involved in the actual, you know, all that? Yeah. I don't know, 500. I think it's a hundred and I think it's under two hundred, hundred and six, hundred and sixty-two as the okay. number I, I've heard. Okay. 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 And and they were there before the speech was even finished. Yeah. So they they weren't they came there for mischief, and I think these are people who just wanted to cause trouble. They don't need to be Antifa. They don't need to be anything else. These are people who are part of you know some weird part of our our country that wants to cause violence. We've had a lot of that lately. So that would be one reason not to have a rally in Washington. But even if they did have a, even if they hadn't have had a rally in Washington, that that doesn't prevent those kind of people from going to Washington and doing stupid things. So, you know, enough of that. For the Democrats, they don't seem to care that the president didn't incite an insurrection. They just want to punish. Of course. course. Now, whether they overreach in that punishment or not, we'll find out. Find out. The Republicans would do well, though to follow what you just said, which is to defend the agenda that has been embraced by a very large number of the American electorate, that we ought to stand up for America first. We ought to have better trade deals. We ought to stand up to China. We ought to get this pandemic behind us. And I fear in almost every case that you know the Democrats are going to continue and they have the majority now and they're going to do an awful lot of bad things, I fear. And it will be up to the Republicans to fight that. And I certainly hope that they do. And we want to make sure that, you know, reason ultimately prevails. And I hope that there are enough Republicans in the House and the Senate that decide to stand up to that. And so, one, we'll find out. And two, I I remain eternally optimistic. So let's let's hope and let's help as Americans, those people who want to stand up for the Constitution and the American way of life and everything that is good about this country. Can I make a joke on your, on your 
Can yes, I, please. If you're optimistic, man, I, I want another definition. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I, you know, we started talking about football, and you know, I'm a guy who who loves football, and I, I've. Uh, I've done the unspeakable, which is to watch the occasional NFL game, uh, even though I said I wasn't going to. At two, Brian. At two. Well, you know, it was a, it was the, it was the, I watched I watched uh, one of them last week, and the reason was you're trying to get back to something normal okay. in our you know country here, and so let's uh, let's hope for getting back to normalcy. Uh, but I fear that we're not going to, or at least we're not going to anytime soon. Thank you, Brian. Very good. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Great to be with you as always. And, uh, you know, we, we should still be optimistic about the American people, even always. if things are always. not so great in the country. Always. You are listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Let's welcome Joel Farkas to the show. He's the director of the American Strategy Group. I'm a fellow of that American Strategy Group here in Washington. Uh, hey, Joel. The audience and I just finished listening to our mutual friend, Brian Kennedy. You want to cheer us up? <laughs> I love Brian Kennedy. Thankfully, America has Brian Kennedy um, uh, on its side. My, my audience knows him, uh, not as well as you know him and I know him. But we had this long conversation. I was arguing with him because he was talking about the demise of this, the demise of that, the demise of the end. He said, of course, I remain optimistic. I said, Brian, if you are optimistic... You know, the world is over. The, it, the end is nigh. <laughs> anyway, we, we love him, and he's a very, very wise man. Where are we? Where are we? Where are we now? Where will we be in six months? Where are we right now, America, the United States of America? You and Brian can speak about the United States government. I'm going to speak about the American people. Um, Middle-class America is thriving. That's where we are. And, and, and yes, Brian, Brian does know that. He's, he's not he's not immune to that that concept. Middle class America is thriving and will thrive for the next decade and has been thriving for the last five years or five years. That's where we are. I know you're probably wondering where in the world did I come up with that? Yeah, where in the world did you come up with that? <laughs> I like to ask answer my own questions um, by the millions. People are moving out of urban, expensive, clustered, unhealthy corridors in America, and they're moving to the country, the great expansive country of America. Five or six percent of the land in the United States is actually occupied. We have vast expanses for people to live, for people to move. They're moving there. And when they move there, when, when, when a family moves to these locales, it is a conscious choice and it's an immediate return on their emotional and financial investment. The financial investment is simple. They're saving several thousand dollars a month on their housing costs and their transportation costs and their utility costs and their food costs and things like that. But the the emotional satisfaction is tremendous because they're not locked down and controlled by some form of municipal or state or federal government edict. When you live in an urban area, you are locked down and controlled constantly by elected officials and people and state middle-class people and more and more even wealthy people and more and more poor people are realizing this instinctively, this, this shutdown, this lockdown, this dictatorial view of how, how they are supposed to live is really unappealing. Give me three places they're moving from and three places they're moving to. New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, San Diego, Chicago, 
uh, I know you only said three, but there's about 20 large urban areas in the United States. Okay. They're moving from all of them. Okay. Okay. And where are they moving to? They're mo- we have 19,300 municipal jurisdictions in America. Yeah, give me five. They're moving 19,300. They're moving to all of them. Give me five. Name five. Just want a picture uh, for me and the audience. Keensburg, Col- Keensburg, Colorado, Brighton, Colorado, Boise, Idaho, Henderson, Nevada, Gilbert, Arizona, Omaha, Nebraska, and, 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 and you know, western, the Tri-Cities area of, of south, uh, southeastern Washington, Salem, Oregon, Calumath, Oregon. How about East Coast? I know they're moving to Wilmington, North Carolina, close to where we live. Yeah. I know they're moving to Florida like crazy. Not going to be in the Northeast, but they're going to be in North Carolina, South Carolina, um, dozens of counties in Georgia, uh, Florida, Arkansas, Alabama, Mississippi, okay. Louisiana, Texas. All right, so they're doing that. Now, um, since you're optimistic and happy, let me just try to pierce that coming off my conversation with Brian. Is Joe Biden going to punish these middle class people? Is he going to stop them from doing this? Yes. Well, is Joe Biden going to? Um Joe Biden is absolutely going to. But let's be clear. Um, this punishment has been pushed and foisted on, on, on middle class Americans by mayors of cities, county commissioners, the planning director, the head of the Metropolitan Water District, the people that uh, uh, provide the state agencies that provide you, you know, stormwater permits and, and things like that. This is not new. Joe Biden is Joe Biden just got elected, and what all he's going to do is do what he can to allow these people to do what they've already been doing. You know, there's a um, in a, in in the San Francisco Bay Area. God bless them. They've now come up with this new concept, and I it's it's air quotes quote new unquote of mandating because by the way, when you're in an urban area. What do you do to solve a problem? The first thing you do is you find something to mandate. That's that's what you do. And then you normally use the word, we need to do this for our community. Whenever someone uses the word our, that means they're trying to convince you to agree with them so they can mandate something on you. Good. San Francisco Bay Area are now discussing mandating 60% of employees to be to be uh, uh, telecommuters. They can't go into to work. Can't go into work. So they're going to mandate everyone. Now, of course, people aren't going into work because They've already mandated they can't come into work. But now they're going to go one step further and mandate that not only can they can they not go into work, they're no longer allowed to go. So what has happened with the extreme progressive people that I just described that are in these local governments and state governments? They are now pushing back on, on that concept because they've said, whoa, wait a second. Now that we're no longer going to allow people to come into an urban area, this is a problem for us. What are the problems? Well, one of the problems is, uh, is um, people aren't going to use public transportation that they've promoted for decades. They're gonna, there's no need for it. Um, what about the businesses that we have authority over? They're no longer going to be in the urban area. And they basically, and this goes on and on, I'm not going to bore your listeners with all this, but basically, um, and, you know, the opposition to that said, wait a second, but people... Or we're making asking people to be in uh, zero emissions vehicles and telecommute so they don't have to drive. And the response is really simple by these ideologue progressives. They say our focus is to reduce per capita miles. Per cap, think about that for a second. Per capita miles, and that has to be done with land use. What does that mean to reduce per capita miles? That means they don't want anybody living anywhere else 
where they might have to commute if they wanted to, to a place. They want them all to be condensed and concentrated in a place that they can control. Now, Joe Biden is simply going to allow his supporters more runway, more financing, more regulatory tools to do what they've already been doing. But it starts with local government. It starts with state government. It starts with your planning director. It starts with your city manager. It starts with with, with, uh, the people that are trying to tell you you must get on public transportation. That's where it all starts. Okay. And the people, by the way, the American people, um, they have, you know, the election was one thing between Biden and Trump, but the American people have already voted. They don't like any of that other stuff. They don't like that urbanization. They don't like it. They've already voted. And quite frankly, the, the progressives are angry at the American people who don't like it. And they call them, uh, what do they call them? Uh, well, they call them a lot of different things, but they say they're populists. That's the, the nicest term they can use. This is a populist movement. No, it's not. It is a, it's something different than that. They're just not, the progressives are not curious enough to understand it. It's not populist. It's, they don't like this, this dictatorial way of living. These progressives, I, I heard your formulation when you, you said our, you know, when you hear our community. My formulation is these progressives love coercion. And one of the ways that they solve their conscience with it is it's for your own good. Our own good. It's, for, like, the lockdowns. it's, like, it's like the lockdowns. Yeah. Right? This is for you. Yep. We're doing for this you, for you, for, for your own good, restaurant owner and restaurant goer. Yep. So if we are, I guess, I guess, I guess I'll come back to my quest, earlier question. If we're going into an era, even a, a, an era, even more mandates and coercions, how will people escape it or resist it or overcome it or whatever? And don't tell me, wait till the elections of 2022. No, no, I won't tell you that. Okay. I won't tell you that. Tell me then. I'm going to tell what. you. I'm going to tell you it's already happening. People have got. They voted with their feet. They got up. They left. They moved. And they have the opportunity in America. We have 50 states and, like I said, 19,300 municipalities. No other country in the world has that kind of choice and opportunity. And this is liberty being exercised at its best. And the the uh, uh, you, you know. I mean, you're a uh, <laughs> you're a, the, the the student of education, being the education uh, uh, secretary. Um, the joke now going around is the new form of government we're going to teach our kids is is Amazon, Google, and uh, Twitter. Yeah, that's the new three branches of government. The three branches of government. Uh, oh, I love that. Amazon, Google, and Twitter. The the yeah, the new ones that we're going to teach our kids. Right. Um, but now. But, but the people aren't listening. We, we know that. We've just got a 2020 census. We know where people are leaving. We, we are going to redistrict this country based on this 2020 census. And that was the census was before COVID. COVID has accelerated that. So um, it's not – they're going to be mandating people that aren't there. That's what's going to happen. Now, so, okay, so, so that's really, though, the, the, the regulatory regime, the government regime, the elected official regime. Let's get back to economics for a brief moment. L.A., Los Angeles, decided that they were going to do something about the homelessness issues in L.A. And we've, we know that San Francisco, L.A., Seattle, New York, those places really account for almost 50 percent or more of the nation's homeless right. crisis. Right. So, so L.A. is now going to they're going to do something which is called tiny houses, where they're going to put them in there, pay for them. People are going to live there. Now, what is L.A. charge? They just got through doing a project, 50 units, five and a half, six million dollars, a hundred and some thousand dollars per unit for a home 
That's the size of a tool shed. Now, why in the world, and by, and by the way, so that's what LA did. Why in the world would that home cost, a size of a tool shed cost $120,000, $30,000? The home itself costs about $5,000. Well, it costs that five, five and a half, six million dollars $650,000 was connecting uh, connection charge to the sewer uh, uh, sewer lines in the city. Uh, five, 600,000 was inspections, planning, and this and the like. Um, uh, you know, uh, utility uh, infrastructure was another several hundred thousand. By the time you actually get down to that five and a half to six million dollars, only about a quarter of a million dollars was spent on the house itself. The rest was fees and obligations and charges by LA. Now, the same down the road, two and a half hours down the road in Riverside, California, they did the same darn thing. Put some tiny houses. They put them in a parking lot in a place that was accessible. And those cost about $17,500 per home. That is a, a stark description of why an urban area is incapable of providing affordable, reasonably priced, high-quality housing. It's, it's, it's not about, you know, moving to, we talk about people moving to no-tax states. That's part of it. But the, the people who move to a no-tax state are typically wealthier. Why did someone who's middle class or lower middle class move to a no-tax state? It's because their housing costs are, uh, you know, in the example I just gave, you know, are, 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 are 10 percent, uh, you know, but it's not that, that small. It's substantially lower for housing and transportation and food and utilities. That's why they move. And then when you add the fact that wealthy people save taxes on no-tax state, you got wealthy and middle-class and lower-middle-class people moving. And, 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 and the reason why an urban area, no matter who is elected, no matter who's mandating, no matter who's dictating, can never solve this problem, and I don't want them to figure this out. I hope they don't listen to you. But they can never solve it because their costs are outrageous and their fees and their charges and their regulatory demands are outrageous. It's kind of an outside limits question. Why can't the course of state say, oh, that's it, we're going to put limits on this? Uh, only uh, yeah. 80,000 people a year can leave Illinois. Well, um, they can put limits. The they, this they group, they can put limits. I don't believe they can say you cannot pack up and leave. What they can say is they restrict all these other places that you go to okay. to preclude them from providing something. That's, okay. that's okay. what they typically they can't tell you you can't way, leave Illinois, and they can't tell you you got to live in a tool shed, right? Right. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. Uh, they can tell all these uh, 19,000 jurisdictions, we're not going to allow you to be a water provider or a municipal water provider, or, or, or we're going we're to put obscene restrictions on the water quality that you do that, that, that you can never adhere to. And, and they can put obscene restrictions on how you treat wastewater. They can deny you stormwater permits. They can do... Uh, they can say that you need an environmental impact statement that basically says wherever you are in this country, um, it has somehow had some animal living there that might have lived there that may come back again sometime in the future and you'll never be able to build on it. Those are the kinds of things federal governments do. Why do they want to do this? Why do they want power to do this? Why? 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 Power, why? Power and control. Power and control. Easiest way to control people. Look straight over to China, and I don't want to sound like our friend Brian Kennedy, but you know sometimes I have to because he's he's brilliant. You look at China, and what has been their focus? We all know about their 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 things that Brian talks about, but from a land use standpoint, their focus is to take as many people from the rural areas and bring them into urban these big large urban cores throughout throughout China. Why would this? Why would the Chinese 
Communist Party want to do that, easy to control them. They control the water, they control the sewer, they control the access and egress, they control where they work, they control where they live. They control the health care they get or don't get. It's so easy to do it. You can look back for 5,600 years of human history. Uh, how did one group of people throughout 5,600 years of human history control the world? They controlled it because they controlled the urban environments and they restricted access to other places and they restricted resources to other places. Where will the fights be in the next six months here, either in the courts or legislatures or town halls? Um, and you've been involved in all of these given the work that you do, where, 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 will, what will, where will the fights be? What will they be about in relation to the things climate, you're talking about? Climate, CO2 emissions, water. The way you can restrict somebody, some town from developing is you say they need to meet the regional or statewide regulatory CO2 emissions regime, and they'll create a benchmark for what if, you, if you're starting at zero emissions and they create a benchmark to say you can't have this percentage increase in emissions, obviously you're starting from zero. Anything you create will cause, um, uh, it will make mean you cannot uh, continue development. Okay. So that's one, you restrict it regionally or nationally. And you restrict it, it's almost like the Paris Climate Accord. Just read, I, I ask your, your, your listeners, read what the Paris Climate Accords it says it allows, you know, basically China, India, and other what they call developing nations to have this almost unlimited, unhindered increase of CO2 emissions while everybody else has a restriction on CO2 emissions based on their current benchmark. That's how you do it. And that's what the Paris Climate Accords say. The second thing you do is you control where the water goes. I mean, water isn't, you know, people don't live, people in, in today's world prefer not to live where it's sunny and warm. I mean, excuse me, they prefer to live where it's sunny and warm. They prefer not to live where it's rainy and snowy. Or it rains and snows, that's where the water is. And if it rains and snows, the water has to go to where it's sunny and warm. It has to be transported. And if you restrict the stream flows through environmental regulations, you restrict who gets to, to flow in the streams at what time of year, then you restrict development. People, who, wherever they live, they have to drink yeah. their water 365 days a year. Yeah. It typically snows and rains during a small portion of it. Yeah. So these are, these are ways that the Biden administration and the federal government, through the, uh, uh, an abusive interpretation of the Clean Water Act and, and the EPA, these are the kinds of things that they will be, you will be seeing. It will not be in courts. It will be regulatory regimes. And they will beg. They will beg people to sue them because all they're doing is presenting a regulatory regime. It hasn't been codified by the courts. The minute they get sued, they have another bite at the apple to codify it and say this is now settled law. They won't prevail. You don't think they'll prevail? um, It depends on who the judge is. (laughs) Sometimes they will. Sometimes they will. You know what? It doesn't matter if they prevail all the time. They just have to prevail once in a while. We started this conversation, Mr. Farkas, with you saying, I don't want to talk about government. I'm not interested in that. I want to talk about the free movement of people and the optimism of the middle class, and the middle class is doing great. But bang, here we go. They're going to have their water regulated. They're going to have their, you know, the, the... yeah, their emissions regulated, et cetera, et cetera. Right? I mean, yeah, there's no, yeah, there's no, no avoiding yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Thank you for focusing my attention. I, 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 I applaud you. You're right. Uh, uh, yeah. 
I, I guess my first comment was a hopeful comment. And as you and I started speaking, uh, it got back to what reality. a hopeful comment. I needed one. <laughs> you, could, you could see why me and Brian like to speak with each other. Yes. <laughs> no, I was just beginning to feel like you were saying, well, you're there, you know, as, as we're speaking, I'm inside the Beltway, you know, in the swamp. And you live in, you can live in that swampy water all you want. But out there, America's booming and rolling along and people are doing great. And I'm saying, isn't the swamp going to try to take, take that over too? And they will, right? Yeah. Yeah, they will. Yeah, they will. Yes. Um, as, as, as you have said often, and, and as Brian has also said along with you, this is a vigilant effort that's required. Um, I, 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 I want, I am hopeful, I am optimistic in that I see decisions being made by free people, free Americans. They're making them. Um, I hope that they uh, are able to be supported, that their decisions are not somehow decimating the collective spirit of, of people. Their decisions are very good decisions from very intelligent, very smart, very, very uh, uh, patriotic people. And I, I use the word patriotic purposely. I want people to realize that I believe their patriotic efforts are admirable, but it's a vigilant effort. We, this is a, um, th- th- there's going to be, there is no question there's going to be attacks on that spirit and, and we can't do anything about it. And yes, it's going to come from Washington, but Washington is going, you know, Washington's going to get the playbook from all their friends in these, uh, these urban areas. They've already, right. you know, when, when we right. had COVID um, and, and all the states started imposing within days this, you know, several hundred page regulatory regime of what you can and can't do, what's an essential versus non-essential business. How did they draft it in a few days? Well, they didn't draft it in a few days. It was sitting on the shelf. It was ready to be implemented with the right opportunity. Because it had already been who drafted. Gets, it had already been written in Minneapolis. It, it, it's already been written. Who, who gets the, who, who sat around? waiting for the right time to determine what's an essential versus non-essential business. That's basically what happened. Somebody got to determine it. They didn't do it in two or three days. They already figured out what was essential and what was non-essential. They thought it was okay for Target and Walmart to sell groceries and healthcare products and other kinds of things, and the local Main Street uh, business could not. They thought it was essential for the contracting people, contracting companies, to continue public works projects but not do private development. That was okay. Those were the things they found essential versus non-essential. Let me try an optimistic note here. In, in the in the midst of the of the you know depths of Mordor, as we'd say in the Lord of the Rings. Good luck, good luck, Bill. That is New York. So all sorts of ridiculous things are being done in New York by the mayor and the governor. All of a sudden, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the governor of New York has said, "Hey, we got to open this place up. This is crazy." <laughs> Do you notice that, Mr. Fargus? <laughs> yeah, I I, I read that. <laughs> Yeah, I did. I did notice that. Because they're dying up there. I mean, they're losing people. Yeah, yeah. They're losing people. You know, I watch Fox, and, um, you know, often on the breaks, they'll show 6th Avenue there, right? And, you know, mm-hmm. 5.30, 6 o'clock at night, there's 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 no there's nobody, nobody moving. There's no cars, or very few. And, I mean, at 5.30 or 6, should be, you know, jam-packed. So, so are they figuring it out, and, and finally they just say, okay, we better surrender to the forces of 
life and vitality and entrepreneurship and open open the place up. Why does it take them so long to figure out if you shut things down, you're going to shut things down, and that means a loss of revenue and people and everything else. Why does that take so long? It didn't take long. They uh, they wanted to get through the election. They achieved their goal. I see. I see. And now see. They're, 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 they're that simple. So, you, you know, what is the big thing on, on housing, again, that, that you know, people, the, the Minneapolis, we've talked about, L.A. Uh, is considering eliminating single-family detached housing that people can own because it's, it's, it's you know, it's not appropriate. I'm not going to get into that now. So now the same people in L.A. who are in San Francisco who are trying to do um, uh, housing for homeless, they are saying we can't put homeless people in these big uh, high-rise tenements. Um, We need to put them into something that they can have a feeling of and a sense of ownership and security, which improves the mental stability of a homeless person. So I could say the same thing. How could they spend all this time saying this is how they got to live? And, and we're going to eliminate people who own a house. And then when we're giving away homeless uh, homes, uh, you know, homes for homeless people, the reason we're doing it is the complete opposite. Well, it, you know, the, the, uh, the term hypocrite gets overused. It's not hip, it's really not hypocritical. If you really understand what their objective is, it makes perfect sense. Their objective is not to help homeless people. Their objective is to control homeless people. Yeah, no, I know. Their yeah. objective is control. Period. Yeah, it's not hypocrisy. And my hope, yeah. my hope is that a, you know, free American citizens see through it. Okay, my that's hope. your hope. What's your expectation? What's your prediction? Where are we in six months? Better than we are now? Yeah, free. Yeah, free American citizens are going to continue to do what I described. Okay. I. I, my hope, my, my belief, my prediction is the federal government, while they will try to restrict and retard and eliminate and disintegrate that, that, that trend, I believe people are doing this at such a rapid rate, it'll be hard to keep up with. Good. I feel better. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm exhausted. <laughs> well, you worked hard. You worked hard. Very, very good. Very, very good. Very, very interesting. Thank you. Thank you, Bill Bennett. You're uh, an American treasure. You're kind. You're exaggerating, but I'll take it. It has the added feature of being true. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Okay, that does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to thebillbennettshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. You are still on Twitter and Facebook. You have not I have been not suspended. been taken off. No, you have not been suspended. They haven't found me yet, huh? Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's Bill Bennett Podcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week.